amazing God. That's who we have, an amazing God. He saw his creation break itself, and he immediately enacted his plan that was ready, his plan to buy back his creation from its self-destruction. And to do that, it required that God step out of heaven, out of his perfection. This limitless God had to put on the flesh and blood and these organs of his own creation. The limitless God had to limit himself for one reason, because God can't die, so he had to limit himself so he could die. The limitless God. He died for one purpose, and that was so that he could help us connect with God, so that we could know God right now and know God forever. What a radical, amazing, astounding love that that is. He came here so that we could know him. Now, here's my confession this week. Confession of a loser. I have spent a big part of my life knowing what I just described to you, and in return... I have offered God my leftovers. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think, especially in America, I'm not alone. We have a tendency to holler at people who are wanting to take the word God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. And we get upset with people who want to take the word God out and the Bible away from those who are being sworn into office. We get upset about uh, and whine about the Ten Commandments being taken off of government property. We throw fits about them not allowing prayer in public schools. And yet, we rarely pay attention to many of those things in our own lives. Well, that is unless, of course... We need something from God, and at that point, then we kind of ramp it up for a little while, and after we've ramped it up for a little while, we look at ourselves and we say, wow, man, was I super committed or what? I think a large part of people who call themselves Christians today do what I spent years doing in my own life, and that is giving God leftovers. The very God who gave us his best We offer him in return just the leftovers from our lives. Leftovers from our money or leftovers from our time or our relationships. Just leftovers. And we think, okay, well, you know, I'm no Billy Graham. So we kind of compare. Billy Graham way up here. I'm no Billy Graham. But listen, I'm not as bad as that guy. We say, you know, I I know I'm I'm not like the Apostle Paul who's up here. No, 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 no. But, you know, I'm not out there selling drugs to your kids at Meekins. I'm not that bad. You know, I know I'm not up here at the top, but I am definitely not at the bottom. I'm probably somewhere here in the middle. We have a tendency to give our best to ourselves. We give our best to our kids. We give our best sometimes to our spouse. We give our best sometimes to our boss. We give our best to some different places, and then, well, God, you know, we say he understands. He knows how hard I'm trying. He knows that after all of that giving, there's just not a whole bunch left, and he's okay. God is okay with what he gets from me. 
We have an arrangement. He gets what is left. But is he? Really? Is he okay? Is God okay with just getting leftovers from our lives? Is he okay with not getting our best when he has given us his all, his best? And I don't think he is. But don't take my word for it. I learned so much of this and have been challenged by a mentor of mine and his teaching. Don't take his word for it either. Jesus pretty much told us this himself. Let's jump into the word. We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 15. Now, this is Jesus who is writing a letter to some churches, and this happens to be one very specific church he's writing a letter to. So these are the words of Jesus to, written to this church. Listen to what he has to say to this church. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I know, I know, I know all the things you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? We often think that Jesus is saying that they are, he wishes they were either spiritually hot or spiritually cold. Most scholars don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. Um, that's what we have a tendency to believe. So let me help you kind of understand this metaphor that Jesus is using. He is using a metaphor of water. So where this church existed, the town they existed in, it, they did not have their own water supply. But six miles north of them, they did have a water supply. Um, and it was a hot spring. So similar to our hot springs in hot springs, they had a hot spring. This hot spring was full of minerals, full of good things, and it was healthy it was, I mean, for the, from even like the hot spring bathing aspect of it, it was so healthy, the minerals in the water, it was good for people. That was about six miles north of this church. That's the hot water. But not far in the other direction was another town that was well known for its cold springs. And it was cool water, and it was so refreshing to drink. I don't know if you have ever had water directly out of a cold spring. It is amazing. And this water was known for how refreshing it was as a cold spring. It had both of these, the hot spring and the cold spring. They both had life-giving properties. And so Jesus is saying, I wish you were like this hot spring. I wish you were like this cold spring, but you're not. He says in verse 16, but you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. Now let me help you understand what's going on here. So the water traveled from the hot spring six miles south and it came to the town where this church was. Full of minerals. Um, the people, here's, here's what that looked like. There was a reservoir where this water was collected. 
And here's what the people saw when they walked up to the reservoir. They saw a 300-foot cliff that was a mile wide. And that hot spring water would flow over the top of that mile-wide 300-foot cliff, and it would flow over the side, 300 feet waterfall, down to the reservoir. It was beautiful. And uh, some of the minerals that were in the water over years and years and years had collected over the top uh, where the water would fall, and some of those were white, and it had so had created this amazing snow-like quality. It was so beautiful, and it would fall 300 feet. It was beautiful. But by the time it traveled this six miles, no longer was it a hot spring. Now it was lukewarm water. But oh, was it pretty. As it came over the side and fell 300 feet, as it was described to me, into the reservoir, people would walk up, they would see how beautiful it was, they would bend down at this beautiful scene, they would take a big old scoop of that water and drink it, depending on how much they got in that big drink, they would either spew it out of their mouth or vomit it out of their mouths. Because what was so amazing at the source, after it had traveled six miles and become lukewarm, something about the taste of the minerals in the lukewarm water was disgusting. It was horrible. Scholars believe that Jesus is talking about this hot water as being good for healing and that cold water in the other direction from this town being, uh, being something that was refreshing that this water was actually doing something. In the north, it was, bringing, it was bringing healing to bodies. In the south, it was bringing refreshment to those who needed that water. But the lukewarm water uh, it, that was in the middle, it, it was really good for nothing. And it was really doing nothing. And he's saying to this church, that's what this church was at this point. Doing nothing and good for nothing. He describes in verse 17 how they describe themselves. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And Jesus says to them, and you don't realize that you are actually, he says, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow, what a list. And you know what? He's talking to a church that, that used to, in its past, it was a church that was giving refreshment spiritually to those who needed it and were desperate for it, were thirsty for it. It was a church that used to give spiritual healing to those who were spiritually sick. But not anymore. At the time that this letter was written, it was describing a much different church now. Now it was describing a church that was filled with, with people who, well, simply people who gave God their leftovers. And Jesus declares them now 
as worthless, lukewarm water that makes him sick. Wow. You know, when we hear that they were part of a church, we say to ourselves, but listen, you know, they're part of a church. Aren't they part of God's kingdom? Aren't they part of, you know, people who call themselves saved? Aren't they? Now, this is critical. So as you look at this, what part of these words that Jesus used to describe them, lukewarm, wretched, miserable, poor, naked, the phrase, vomit you out of my mouth, what part of those words makes us think that these people were saved and part of God's kingdom? And the new covenant, this new testament we call it, Jesus is clear. He wants our all. It really is all or nothing. You know, in the first century, when these churches were, were beginning, the first century, um, they didn't even have a concept of someone who could call themselves a Christian and not be a devoted, following disciple of Jesus. That concept was just absurd. They couldn't imagine that. Someone who called themselves a Christian but was not a devoted following disciple of Jesus. In today's world, we've made up a word. We've made up a term, lukewarm Christian. It's a new label that we can apply to someone or apply to ourselves. It's a new level of Christianity, lukewarm Christian. But you know what? There's no such thing really as a lukewarm Christian. There's no such thing. Jesus was very clear. As he's speaking about these churchgoers, he's very clear. Churchgoers who are lukewarm are not Christians. He vomited them out of his mouth. In Jesus' day, there really was no such thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christ follower. That's something we invented. That's something we invented to make following Christ easier. And really, it's so that we can do what we want, when we want, how we want, for whatever reasons we want. We can do what we want and still follow Jesus. So, today we can sign up to join without ever having to really live like Jesus lived or do what Jesus did. Now, something's wrong when we're only willing to live the parts of Jesus' life that we think might be necessary for us to have salvation. Oh, I'll live that part. And people who make that choice, they're asking questions like this. Well, where is that line of sin? We talked a little bit about that last week. Where is that line of sin? And how close can I get to that line without actually going over that line? Where is the line? I want to know where it is so I can know how close I can get. I don't want to go over it, or at least I don't want to go over it too many times so that I'm out. Where is that line? How close can I get without crossing the line? 
And that question reveals something. If we're asking that question, it reveals our hearts. And Jesus was very clear about this. He says in John chapter 14, listen to what he says. If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will. So maybe the question we should ask, it's not where is the line, but maybe, maybe the real question is this. Can I go to heaven without really loving and being faithful to Jesus? Can I go to heaven without really loving and being faithful to Jesus? And the new covenant answer to that is clearly, no, we can't. You say, but Harley, Harley, but I believe, Harley, I, I believe. And the brother of Jesus kind of clears that up. He says in James chapter 2, you believe that God is one? Well, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. In the very next verse, he says, foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? James is saying God does not want you just to know about God. And God doesn't want you just to have a good understanding of who God is. He doesn't want you to just have a good theology. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to love Him. And if you really do love Him, the New Covenant tells us, then it shows if you really do love Him. The writer of 1 John says this in John chapter 2, 1 John 2. This is how we are sure come to know him, by keeping his commands. He goes on in verse 4. The one who says, I've come to know him, finally. I've been saved. I've come to know him. He says, the one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, my mentor says, he says, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe what the writer in John is trying to say in these verses, that if a man claims to know God but doesn't obey him, that that person is a liar and the truth is not in him. He says, I believe he's saying exactly what he said. When you really do know him, you really do something. At least according to Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, listen to this. Jesus, he said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. There's something. You must take up your cross. There's something. And follow me. There's something there. He says in verse 25, If you try to hang on to your life, if you try to hang on to all your best, everything you want, all of you, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, he says, if you give up your will, your desire, your best for me, he says, if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And Jesus goes on to say in Luke, he says this, so you actually cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. You actually cannot. Unless you choose to give up all your best for me, he says, your life for me, you cannot. 
you cannot become my disciple. Now, some people have the idea, though, that there are levels of this thing called Christianity, being a Christian. You know, we've got the lukewarm level. We talked about that. The lukewarm, kind of the half-committed, somewhat in, sometimes mostly in even, but it kind of varies, lukewarm. And then we've got the Christian who's a little more steady. But then right here at the top, we've got the disciple. That's the person that's all in. I mean, that's the Billy Graham. That's the Apostle Paul. That's, you know, Mother Teresa. We've got that level. And they think that you can be a Christ follower without being a disciple. But I wonder, how will they explain some of those last words of Jesus before he left this earth and went back to his Father in heaven? Those last words of Jesus when he told those who were following him, who had gathered there around him, and he told them to go and make disciples, and to see them baptized, and to teach them everything I have commanded. Notice that Jesus did not say, but hey, hey guys, if you can't get them to become a disciple, at least, at least get them to become a Christian. You know, a Christian. The ones who still get to Go to heaven, but they don't have to commit to anything. He didn't say that. Now, if you're a true follower of Jesus, listen very closely. I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. I want you to know this, that God's grace is amazing. And God's grace can cover all of our feeble human, failed attempts at loving God. God's grace can cover that, and it does. Every single Christ follower has some lukewarm areas in their life. And God, His grace is so lavish that it can cover that. God has actually made room for our failures in His plan. So His grace can cover our failures. My biggest failures in my life have come after I became a follower of Jesus. And God's grace made room for that, covers that. When you mess up in life, if you're a Christ follower... When you mess up in life, you are not proving that you are not saved. That's not what's happening. There's a difference. Here's the difference. If you're trying to test yourself, this is not for you to test someone else, the person beside you or the person that you left at home. This is not for you to test them. This is for you to test yourself. Here's the thing. There's a position and a posture that's involved. That's kind of what you need to test in your life. A position and a posture. Let's just look at your week. You look at your week. I'm not going to look at your week. You look at your week. I'll look at my week. When you look at your week, is it summarized 
by you having a posture that says, my best, my best this week has been for me. And my best this week has been for mine. Me and mine. That's where my best has gone. And my position, my posture and my position now, my position has been me walking or running, but maybe just walking or strolling toward that sin line. Getting close to that line. That has been my position. My posture, my position. Or, as I look at my week last week, my week is described as a posture that says, God deserves my best. God deserves my best. And my position is me running after, pursuing, chasing after God. Even though in that process, God deserves my best and, and I fail. But I get back up. God deserves my best. And, and I'm, my position of chasing after pursuing God, and I still, I get tripped up and I fall, and I fall hard. I get scraped up in life. I get scratched up in life. But I get up and God helps me dust myself off, and I'm pursuing, chasing after God. And I fall, and He helps me back up, and I'm pursuing, chasing after God. Does that describe my posture and my position? See, the New Testament is clear. Doing Christian-y things does not make you a Christian. Following Jesus makes you a Christian. But here's where we come to our big problem, though, today for sure. We have a problem. We think we're doing pretty good. I mean... If we look at it, we think we're doing pretty good. I mean, we have it pretty good. Most of us have lunch for today. Somehow, we have plans we know we're going to eat today. Most of us know we're going to eat supper tonight. We, we're good for food. We're, we're good today and tonight. We have a place to sleep. Even if it's not your place, you have a place to sleep tonight. That's pretty good. You probably even have food around you at that place enough, maybe for several days. I mean, you may have a pantry full of some canned goods. You know, it may not be like a balanced meal, but you may have plenty of canned goods. You can open up cans for several days and be just fine. You got a car to drive. And if you don't have a car, you, you probably know someone who would come and pick you up and help you get somewhere. You have transportation. See, we may not be rich, but we're doing okay. We're doing okay. You know, the folks that Jesus was just talking to in this letter, the folks that he was going to vomit out of his mouth, Jesus called them rich. They didn't have to depend on Jesus. But you say, well, Harley, yeah, that's not me, though. I mean, I'm doing okay, but that's not me. I'm not rich. But are you? You know, among the wealthy, 
among the world, wide, wealthy, that includes you. I mean, that's the truth. That includes you. Most of the world makes less than $2 a day. And you spent more this week on one single trip through the drive through at a fast food restaurant than most of the world, one single trip, than most of the world will make in half of a month. And you ask them if you're rich. We have hundreds of times more than most of the world will ever have. And yet, we claim to be broke. But on the world stage, we, every single one of us in this room today, on the world stage, we are rich. And Jesus is clearly saying that being rich can be a serious disadvantage to your eternity and mine. Let's listen to him say it. Luke chapter 18. Once, a religious leader asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus goes on and gives him an answer, gives him kind of a standard uh, uh, Old Testament answer. And then the guy responds to Jesus. Jesus listens, and then here's what happens in verse 22. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, Oh, wait, 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 wait. There's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Oh, then come follow me. Verse 23, But when the man heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. goes on, verse 24, When Jesus saw this, he said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, a rich person, to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, It is a camel going through the eye of a needle. It is impossible for a rich person to be saved. That's what Jesus is saying. But before you get too scared, because we in here worldwide, we are all rich, Jesus gives us hope. In verse 27, Jesus replied, What is impossible for people is possible with God. It's possible with God. It may be impossible for us rich folks, but it's possible for God. God wants our best. God deserves our best. He demands our best. The best of our resources, the best of our time, the best of our attention, the best of our affection, all of our best, everything that makes us us, He deserves and desires and demands our best. And listen, He will not even accept our leftovers. He won't. He asks for our all. And it is all. It's all or nothing. You say, Harley, it sounds like to me, I'm confused. It sounds like to me you're saying we have to work for 
We have to earn this thing called salvation. We have to earn our way into faith. No, 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 no. No. It is by grace. It is not of anything that we can do. Period. It is grace and grace alone. But listen to this. Here's what I'm saying. Our faith is proven true by what we choose to do. What we choose to do reveals whether we have a real faith or not. And we have ramped up with the topics in this series and the last series because I I am worried for people. I am worried for people who feel like they have just enough God, you know? They have just enough. Not too much. I have just enough God. And they have fit them into their busy schedules and their busy lives that are filled with with leagues and, and they're filled with practices and classes and work and play and weekends. And they feel like they've taken just enough of God for now, a reasonable amount, and they have fit them into their lives. When God should actually consume us. God is not something that can be added to an already busy life. God, the creator of all this universe, these galaxies, these planets and stars, that God who created all of that loves us so much that he limited himself to a human body so that he could die for our sins and the sins of the world. This is an amazing God. And with our decisions, every single day, we are saying this to God. Oh, God, I'm not really sure that that you're worth it, God. I like my truck. I like my league. I like my weekends. I like my evenings just the way they are. I like my money. I like my habits. I like my sin. And I'm not sure I want to give them up even if it means I get you. No wonder Jesus himself actually said that the road to him is narrow. It is not wide. It is narrow, and few actually find it. And even fewer of those on the world stage who are considered rich. Don't assume, don't, it is dangerous, don't assume that you are on the narrow road. Maybe we need to do what we did last week and just ask you again, keep testing yourself. Keep testing yourself. But let me give you some good news. Because before Jesus vomits out these faith fakers, these lukewarm attenders, out of his mouth, he gives them a chance to repent, which means to turn around. I was going this direction, but I'm going to turn around and go this direction. He gives them a chance to turn around and to follow him. Here's what he told them next. In Revelation 3.20, he said this, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. 
no longer an enemy of God, no longer running away from God, but now following Him as friends. Are you a follower today? He wants all of you. And it will take all of you because leftovers are rejected. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing I asked you to do last week. This week, will you search the New Testament and see if what I am saying is really true? And as you look in the New Testament, will you look very closely at the words of Jesus and see if what I am saying is actually true? And then do this. Don't assume. Don't assume that just because we show up at church, don't assume that we are on the narrow path if the current direction of our lives is lukewarm. Let's pray. Jesus, you told us that if anybody wants to be your follower, that we have to turn from our selfish ways, take up our cross, and we have to follow you. If we try to hang on to our lives, we will lose them. But if we give up our lives, our best to you for your sake, we will save them. With you, Jesus, it is all or nothing. And you have not given up on us, Jesus. Right now, at this very moment, you are asking for our all. And you say, look, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus, may we individually open that door. May we greet you with our best. May we never, never give you leftovers again. Jesus, let's sit down and share this life together. Amen.